On today's episode, we are talking all about natural ways to support mood disorders such as depression and anxiety. We talk about some of the root cause issues, things that can upregulate neurotransmitter dysfunction and neural inflammation. So we hope that this helps you if you're somebody who is struggling with depression or anxiety. There's a lot of things in here that you can implement into your daily routine. Live your life within the moment, moment. And don't go wait until the morning, morning. You never know when it is over, over. All that I know is Hello, hello. Welcome back to the food code. Yes, it is my nine-year wedding anniversary today. Ooh. I know. We're getting old. I know, right? I was like, part of me is like, God, I can't believe I've been with Nick for over a decade. Mm -hmm. Or no, we were just talking about it yesterday. I was like, you've been with me almost a quarter of your life. (laughs) Yeah, we uh, were looking into, I was actually looking last night because Nick was watching the Phillies game and it was an exciting game for him. I find baseball extremely boring. Mm Mm-hmm. I prefer football, um, but he was like, is it okay if we keep watching this until the end of the game? I was like, I'll scroll the internet. So I was like looking at places to go for a trip next year because mm-hmm. I was originally looking at Costa Rica. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to go to Costa Rica. But what I've been reading is that September and October, the Pacific side, a lot of places actually close because mm. it's so rainy. Mm. The Caribbean side, though, it's like really good to go at that time. So I'm also looking at like anywhere that we could go for a tropical vacation next year because it'll be our 10-year uh, Nick's sister and her husband. It will be their anniversary 10 years, I think, mm-hmm. around then too. So I'm trying to decide where to go. And you guys are going together? Yeah, we're going to do like a couple's. Oh, keep me far from that. No, you don't I like going not with- do, Not for my 10-year anniversary. No? I would do it with friends, just normal, but no, not for my 10-year anniversary, I wouldn't. Yeah, no, I'm, that way we'll have- some us time if we want it, but then I like having like friends. So you guys are like close with them, right? Oh yeah. No, him and his sister and us, we get along very well. Um, so yeah, we're, they're, they're good people. We like hanging out with them. Yeah. So we love doing like, um, you know, trips with friends and stuff like that. But after the last one, I think we're probably gonna do mostly the two of us or families together because Mm -hmm. everybody just has different agendas and like, I don't want to have a timeline. That was one thing that, um, we said to like a lot of our friends, half of them agreed and half of them were like, we have to do it here, here, here. And like, mm-hmm. nope. On vacation, I want zero timeline. And if I want to sleep in or I want to take a nap at two o'clock or whatever, unless you're doing like excursions yeah. and stuff like that. I like, I like excursions, but yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, it, I'm excited. It's crazy to think though. Nine years. Nine years. Um, okay, so... We are going to talk today. Uh, I actually got a question this morning even on how anxiety and hormones are related um, because they have a lot of intercorrelation. Today, we're going to be focusing mostly on depression, but we will also talk about anxiety. Uh, And I think that we have seen in our society the scary, Mm -hmm. drastic increase of depression and people on antidepressants. And we want to talk about natural support strategies, root causes that we see. We've done a couple of other podcasts on this, but I think it's always good to revisit this um, and talk about it in a couple of different ways. Um, Because, you know, statistically, uh, depression is rampant in Western countries that have more money and privilege than anywhere else in the world, believe it or not. Uh, About one in four adults in the U.S. have more than or AKA more than 26% of the population suffers from a diagnosable mental disorder. 
Anxiety afflicts more than 40 million Americans. Nearly 10% of the U.S. population has a mood disorder for which powerful drugs are prescribed. That's 30 million people on psychiatric drugs. Yeah, and I I would say that I think this is probably higher than what's actually reported um, in terms of some people don't go to the doctor. Some people don't seek help, right? They isolate um, or they think that they can handle it. Uh, And so, again, I just know with the last few years and the pandemic and everything, many people have felt a little bit lost, right? Mm -hmm. Secluded, um, disconnected from people. And, you know, obviously with the ultra processed foods that we're exposed to, all of the toxins that impacts the gut microbiome, neurotransmitters, and all of this, you know, impacts how you feel. If your dopamine is low, you're not producing enough serotonin, right? All of these things are going to impact your day-to-day vibrancy, if you will, how you look at things. And then when we think about mental health and the amount of negativity that we see, whether that is the media or some of the music, um, you know, and not filling our mind with positivity and things that can grow and expand our mind and learning and things like that. I think, you know, all of this combined has led us to a place where we have a pandemic of mental health issues. Um, and what we also know for women, you know, in their forties and their fifties, um, this can also be hormone induced and related because they're going through a big transition. Um, so that's what we want to talk about today. And I think that there's going to be some things in here that will help you understand that it's not all in your head. You know, I also see a lot of people coming in if they've had, for example, IBS or gut issues, they've been, you know, prescribed anti-anxiety medication. It's a chicken and the egg scenario. Research shows us gut issues precede mood disorders, anxiety and depression. Right. Absolutely. And and we know for sure with what we've seen in our practice and the research around parasites and how they inflict anxiety, restlessness, sleeplessness, right? Low mood or mood swings. There's there's things that we should look a little bit deeper at. I know you just saw the story about the worm that was found in that lady's brain. That's been like I all didn't. over the internet. No. no? It she was having a lot of um mental mood disorders and like um headaches and migraines. And I don't think it was in the U S but the person that was doing, um, a scope, I believe it was maybe had something like attached to her, whatever she was sticking up there. I can't know that. I don't know that. Oh my God. Live worm found in Australian woman's brain in world first discovery. Although I would largely say that that is probably not the first person that it's fricking happened to. Oh no, we've seen, no, we see it all the time. Yeah. We've seen, uh, you guys We've seen lots. There, there, there are barriers, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today. There are barriers that these parasites can end up in other parts of the body when they originate in the gut. And it is not uncommon for people to have parasites. I don't want to say uncommon. It is not unheard of for mm-hmm. people to have parasites that make their way to the brain. Yes, we've seen just in terms of different um, case studies and research articles and things like that from conferences that we've gone to, people who have done nasal rinses and flushed a lot of things out that way. We've also seen people have, you know, really infected oral cavities and have a lot of... Yep. Things, um, coming out that way. Uh, and then also like cancer, different types of cancer, um, and neurological cancers as well. So, you know, anyways, now the world, this is on the guardian. So we, we didn't just make it up here. We're not, uh, I've seen it all over. It's been super all over. Woo-woo. Okay. Um, yeah. I don't read the news because it's, uh, you know, who know. posted about it was biohacking bombshell. Oh, okay. Um, 
so yeah, anyways, talking about brain inflammation, uh, <laughs> speaking of depression and brain inflammation. So new research has indicated that this imbalance is not a genetic flaw as it once thought was thought. And we've talked about this. A lot of people say like there's an imbalance of neurotransmitters that drives depression. First of all, that was actually never backed up by research. Mm -hmm. That was a theory and it has never been proven. And so a lot, basically this genetic flaw as we once thought is not actually true, but instead it's due to a heavy onslaught of toxicity or severe nutritional and lifestyle based deficiencies that cause essentially massive brain inflammation. And it disrupts your normal neurological processing that should happen. And the thing is, fortunately, when these causes are addressed, you can overcome chemical imbalances and technically, you know, beat it naturally. You can beat depression naturally. And we are not trying to attack those with depression or are on antidepressants or anti-anxieties on this podcast. We want you to understand that it is not something that you have to be on. And we've talked about this before, but Andy Frisella talks about it on his podcast a lot. He was on um it was antidepressants. For it was many an antidepressant. Years. I, it, Lexapro. That's what it was. I, I couldn't think. I was like, not level thyroxine. Lexapro. And he talked about how when he was on it, he didn't realize until he got off of it, like how numb it truly made him. Mm-hmm. Like he didn't have, you know, Emotions he, 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 he talked about how he talks to people a lot about how he's like, people will come up to them and say how he's changed their life. And he's like, and when I was on it, like, it, you know, I was like, oh, that's incredible. He's like, now I like feel these emotions that I've never, I, I don't remember feeling. And so just understand that, you know, there's, there's things that it impairs in terms of good and bad emotions. Yes. But it, it to an extent, somewhat numbs. Right. And so we want to give you more hope that there are ways to do this and ease the burden. Cause Liz and I see it all the time as do our practitioners on our team. One of my favorite transformations that people say is that their mood isn't, they're like, I'm just happier. Mm-hmm. Like I, I can't really pinpoint it. I can't put my finger on it, but like my mood is just more stable. Things don't bother me as much. Their stress capacity and their yes. handling stress is not as short fused, you know? Um, also, I think when you're working on yourself and you're building confidence in yourself and you're proud of what you're doing and you have, you know, better energy, your mood naturally is lifted. Um, and, you know, again, I think that there are definitely uh, situations where people should utilize the medications and we're thankful, um, you know, for that, because obviously mental health is not something that should be overlooked. Um, and so, you know, if you are somebody on some of these medications, please also recognize we're not saying that you should come off these medications. There's a lot of work that we do with our clients before everybody, anybody ever addresses weaning, um, you know, off of their anti-anxiety or anti-depressant medications. And it's always under the care of their prescribing practitioner. So if that's their psychologist or whoever it might be, you know, we defer to them on, on that piece because obviously that's out of our scope. Um, and so it is something I've been asked about many times from clients. Can I start weaning? I feel really good. No, you can't until you talk with your prescribing practitioner on how you're going to wean, uh, because they have a very long half-life. And we've talked about that before, but anyways, when we think about, you know, the major cause of depression, it is chronic brain inflammation. Okay. And so science has shown that inflammatory cytokines impact the brain and can reduce the quantity of neurotransmitters produced and the sensitivity of these neurotransmitter interactions. So we have to remember your body creates inflammation in order to fight 
against infections, right? So systemic infections have killed more people in the history of mankind than anything else. It makes sense that your body is adapted, right? We have this adaptive immune system. It's hardwired um, to help defend you and, and keep you alive, right, um, from these infections. And so it has a very sophisticated inflammatory system. And one of the major mediators is called cytokines. Cytokines are cell signaling molecules that aid cell to cell communication in the immunological response and stimulate the movement of cells towards a site of inflammation, infection, or trauma. So we think of cytokines um, as interleukins, interferons, which are all found in abundance in you know sites of inflammation. So you cut your hand, right? You're going to find them um, there at that site because they've come in to do a job. This is one thing that we actually talked about uh, when we were talking about the MRT that also tests for cytokines um, to see what the body is doing when it is exposed to certain foods or chemicals. So that would be something that we would definitely look at if somebody's really struggling with chronic depression because we want to see what is anything, you know, what is up regulating uh, the immune system's response. So individuals with depression have been shown to have higher levels of these inflammatory cytokines in their neurological tissue. One study showed that individuals suffering have significantly higher plasma inflammatory cytokines compared to a control group after 12 weeks of treatment, um, they saw these markers reduce. So growing evidence suggests that specific cytokines signal the brain to generate neurochemical, neuroimmune, neuroendocrine, and behavior changes. An imbalance of cytokines within the central nervous system, or even systemically, may play a role in the pathophysiology of mood disorders. So we look at this as kind of a cascade. We've talked about this before with hormones, right? So we have an inflammation cascade. Inflammation downstream decreases the neurotransmitter metabolism, it decreases neurogenesis, and it increases glutamate excitotoxicity, okay? And all of those alter your neural circularity, which I probably just butchered that word, leading to depression. Yeah, and something to understand too is that our inputs affect the inflammation slash anti-inflammation impact of cytokines, so there's pro-inflammatory cytokines and there's actually anti-inflammatory cytokines. Um, in the interleukins, it's like IL-2, IL-3 are all pro-inflammatory and then IL-17. There's all these different numbers. It doesn't mean anything to you. But what influences that is omega-3 to omega-6 ratio to an extent. So higher amounts of omega-3s in your diet from fish oil, from Mediterranean-based diet, from avocado oil, healthy fats, influence more anti-inflammatory activity from these cytokines and omega-6 inputs from processed foods, seed oils, vegetable oils, inflammatory things will influence a higher amount of sorry, pro-inflammatory cytokine involvement. So see how this is influenced by our inputs and what we do. Um, so let's talk a little bit about brain inflammation and antidepressants. So modulation of these cytokines by a chronic antidepressant treatment may result in restored balance, but many scientists also believe that the benefits some individuals receive from antidepressants are actually due to the mild anti-inflammatory effect of the drugs and, you know, essentially what they have and not on the chemical neurotransmitter regulation that the medications are marketed and sold for. So a lot of people say, you know, like, oh, it'll balance your brain chemistry, right? No. It's an anti-inflammatory, just like you know, a healthy diet and an active lifestyle and managing your emotional and mental traumas and stressors can be. So a New England Journal of Medicine review on major depression stated, numerous studies of norepinephrine and serotonin metabolites in plasma, urine, and 
cerebrospinal fluid, as well as postmortem studies of the brains of patients with depression, have yet to identify the purported deficiency reliably, like we've talked about. So this also explains why natural anti-inflammatories actually outperform antidepressants in clinical trials. These natural anti-inflammatories include, what did I just say, exercise, sun exposure, omega-3 fatty acids, curcumin, resveratrol, and adaptogenic herbs like ashwagandha. Can I just say that if we could have you take one thing away from this podcast today, it would be to get every source of seed oils out of your diet Mm -hmm. because this is directly linked with inflammation in the body. We know that. Yet so many people still continue to buy things that have vegetable oil, corn oil, soybean oil, all of these things. If you could just really focus on that one thing and get in a good amount of omega-3 fatty acids, maybe you know that is also in supplement form, but I'm talking here specifically about your diet, you would see a lot of improvement, especially with your mood. There is a really good book, How to Beat Depression, How to Eat to Beat Depression and Anxiety, and it's a um psychiatrist that talks about this and gives examples of how he uses the power of nutrition solely to help his clients. And obviously in certain scenarios or, you know, very complex cases, he uses the medication, but a big, big thing that he talks about in that book is the impact of inflammatory oils in the diet. Outside of that, obviously we're going to think about sugar, alcohol, other types of processed foods, but I just wanted to say that here because as Becca has been, you know, kind of talking about the natural anti-inflammatories are God made omega-3 fatty acids. You're going to find this in, you know, olive oil, avocado oil, MCT, coconut oil. You're going to find it in fatty fish, all of these things, curcumin, turmeric, right? Adaptogenic herbs, ashwagandha is, is just one example. All of these, they're from the earth. They're, they're not man-made synthetic pharmaceuticals. So I just wanted to put that in there because I think this one is something that like people hear about and they're like, okay, it's okay. I'm just going to keep consuming it. Right. If I go out to eat, I always take my biotoxin binder with me. I always take my gluten digest because even if it's not something I'm ordering that has gluten, I can't control whatever, you know, what oils they're using, what other ingredients that they're using that may not be good, high quality. It's not grass fed. It's not wild caught fish, those types of things. And so those two supplements help me combat the exposure because I can limit my exposure, but I'm never going to fully omit it, right? Or get around it unless I just live like a hermit and, you know, don't ever go out to eat. So I just wanted to put that in there because I think people don't understand what a drastic impact that has on the body in terms of inflammation. Yep. Very true. So let's talk about the gut because we've touched a little bit on it, but it is a very large impact. It's a widespreading impact. Like we talk about all the time on the podcast, but there's a tremendous amount of research around this as well. Mm-hmm. That links the gut microbiome to neurological health. Uh, gut bacteria produce hundreds of neurochemicals that the brain uses to regulate basic physiological processes as well as mental processes, learning, memory, mood, the gut bacteria manufactures 95% of the body's supply of serotonin which influences obviously mood and GI activity actually. So research has indicated that low levels of certain good bacteria, are lactobacillus and bifidobacterium are linked with increased brain excitability and neurological inflammation. So these microbes help to break down the excitatory neurotransmitter glutamate 
into the inhibitory transmitter GABA. GABA is that calming. And when we see low levels of GABA, we often see anxiety, seizures, depression, dementia, and Alzheimer's. Something else that we've talked about before, we've, we've done a whole podcast on mm-hmm. mental mood disorders, like how many times we could probably see Alzheimer's reverse mm-hmm. or Early not onset, happen. Prevent brain it, fog, you know, brain fog, forgetfulness. And what's really frustrating is that this is becoming something that people chalk up as normal. Mm-hmm. It's mom brain. Yeah. Oh gosh. I, and like, and I get it. It's easier to joke about things and it's easier to make fun of things mm-hmm. than to actually face them. Um, and it's, you know, power in numbers, right? Like people feel less shameful or bad about what they're dealing with because all of the other people are dealing with it, yeah. you know? It's, but, it, you know, it comes down to like, how is it impacting your life? Because if you have mom brain here, you can't remember things. You can't read to your kids. You can't, you know, remember why you walked into a room. Okay, sometimes that happens for sure. And I've been there. But from a day-to-day perspective, you should be able to concentrate, be productive, right? If you're somebody who's struggling with this, this is going to impact your work, right? Which impacts, uh, obviously, your finances um, and maybe getting promotions or not. And in all of these things. And so if you're struggling with brain fog, we got to look at what's driving this neural inflammation. So we also know that certain microbes in the gut secrete toxic metabolites that have increased excitatory responses in the brain and increased inflammatory, guess what, cytokine activity. So this is where we look at gram-negative bacteria. So you have gram-negative, gram-positive bacteria. We won't bore you with those things, but things like E. coli, salmonella, shingella, they all have waste products called lipopolysaccharides that inflame the brain and create depressive-like behavior. So we see these on the GI map test. We can see, you know, what they are impacting for that individual. Um, You know, various bacteria act in different ways. Uh, And then obviously we're looking at the bigger picture versus just certain strands, but we can connect these things and say, okay, this is really a problem. And now we're addressing the root cause of this person's neurotoxicity. Because if you don't know what it is, for example, with mold, different types of mold, there's different binders that work to help clear that mold. Same thing with bacteria in the gut. There's different herbs that help to um, kill specific types of bacteria in the gut. And so you've probably heard of the gut brain axis before, but it's kind of what I would say, you know, a two-way street. So if you have healthy gut function, you are going to have a healthy central nervous system function, systemic communication, your you know motility is good, you're secreting the things that you should be in terms of your gastric juices, you have nutrient delivery, you're absorbing things, you have a balance of your microbes. This is going to be you know good, normal cognition, emotion, you have healthy levels of inflammatory cells or mediators, and if you don't have these things, we're going to see a abnormal central nervous system function. So we can't maybe get out of the sympathetic nervous state. So we can never get into the rest and digest the parasympathetic state because there's neural communication blockages. This is one thing we'll look at in terms of like stimulating your vagus nerve, your vagal tone, cold showers, cold therapy, gargling, singing, things like that. All of this is going to influence stress, anxiety, mood, behavior, neurotransmitter imbalance, alterations to behavior in terms of your cognition and your emotions. Again, altered levels of inflammatory uh, cells or mediators because of the intestinal dysbiosis. So the gut-brain axis is a very, very real thing. And what does that impact? Blood sugar. So we know that the blood-brain barrier is a very tight network of blood vessels that is designed to only allow small nutrients to pass into the brain. 
It's a mechanism, again, that your body is using to protect your brain from oxidative stress, infectious bacteria, microbes, right? Chronic inflammation. When you have dysregulated blood sugar, this is going to impact just like it does in the gut microbiome. You have a leaky gut, right? Where your um, cells have basically opened up to a level that allows larger particles of protein and foods to seep through. The same thing will happen in the brain because of this inflammation. It leads to opening in that blood-brain barrier and therefore toxins cross into the brain and they have that inflammatory activity. So it's all connected. And this is why when we look at the foundations of health, we're looking at Obviously, you know, we talked about Monday, your blood work first. We are getting eyes on blood sugar right away or down the line in some situations. And then the gut, the gut always goes first because if your gut microbiome is imbalanced, your blood sugar is going to be imbalanced. Yep. So there's a couple of other things that are interesting facts that I want to cover around the percentage of people with depression and what they deal with. Um, so let's start with sleep or, you know, what we call our circadian rhythm. Uh, so as everyone knows, you need adequate sleep for physical, mental, emotional health, all the things. And it's sleep is one of the only times that your body can actually detoxify itself and repair itself. Um, there's only a couple of things that we actually do to help our body build itself up, and that is sleep, eat food, and rest and recover. And, you know, you have to get your body into that parasympathetic rest and digest state. So when we cannot sleep properly... The body cannot detox, which leads to bigger inflammation. And according to research, about 90% of people with depression suffer with sleep quality complaints. About two-thirds of people undergoing a major depressive episode will experience insomnia, with about 40% of patients complaining of problems initiating sleep. So like it's hard for you to stay asleep, or I'm sorry, get to sleep, and it's hard for you to stay asleep, or you wake up really, really early. Um... So hypersomnia happens in about 15% of people. It's basically a condition where you have like excessive sleepiness and long stretches of sleep even during the day. Uh, and insomnia is the opposite. So obviously insomnia is not sleeping. Hypersomnia is you are sleeping constantly. Um, and both of them are you're exhausted, right? Um, gluten is another one. So gluten is a common protein molecule. We all know what gluten is, I think, that at least if you're listening to the podcast, you do. Um, and it's kind of a sticky storage protein that binds to the small intestinal wall where it will cause digestive and immune system disorders in some people. So there's actually a lot of extensive research about gluten sensitivity and disorders in every part of the neurological system. Uh, it's a consistent, significant trigger in psychiatric disorders, such as anxiety, bipolar, depression, schizophrenia. Um, honestly, if you have any of these diagnosed mood disorders, I think that you should be 100% gluten-free. So- 73, 73%, that's three out of four people with gluten sensitivity, have a lack of blood flow to their brain. That is an insane statistic. 73% of people, three out of four, with gluten sensitivity, have a lack of blood flow to their brain. So this is where it gets really tricky because some people don't have celiacs, and so they feel like, ah, oh, I can have some gluten here nor there. Well, the research tells us that gluten stays in your system for up to six months. On the GI map and on the MRT test, we can see, you know, how the body is reacting to gluten. And I'll just give my uh, personal, you know, experience with this because I was not digestively reactive to gluten. Mm -mm. I get back pain. I feel brain fog. I feel like I can't concentrate as well. And I yep. get joint pain. And a lot of people will say, well, gluten's not my problem. It's so hard to give up gluten. And it is. It's hard to do a lot of things. 
you know what, Sally, it's not hard to give up gluten. You talked to me 20 years ago. It was freaking hard to oh, give up gluten. Absolutely. You have so many things today that are good, like the carbonate bread. I think mm-hmm. it's really good. It is really good. It's a gluten-free, it's it's a lower carb, but they have many other ones out there. Um, you can import flour if you want from other places uh, that doesn't have the same glyphosate content that we have here in the United States. Because guess what? It's banned everywhere else but here. Um, we can go on a different tangent about that a different day, but you can sit here and tell me all day till the cows come home that gluten is hard. And I'm going to tell you, it's probably one of the easiest dietary changes that you're ever going to make. Mm-hmm. I would agree. It's just swapping things. I didn't it ask literally you is to just give swapping up things. like an entire food group. No. Like carbohydrates for the rest of your life. No, not at all. And it, I think that a lot of people don't realize the effect that gluten has. And hundred percent, which is why it makes it air quote here harder to avoid it. Because again, you may not have the digestive reactions, but if you have tests showing you and you have this information now saying, oh man, maybe this could be part of it. Give yourself six months, completely gluten-free. And if you travel or you go places, take the gluten digest. That's what I do because I have Hashimoto's or, you know, now I'm in remission and my blood looks great. But at one point, I had all the antibodies. Um, and so I keep it out of my diet because one, I just feel better. Yep. But yep. two, I understand and recognize, as I mentioned before, we can try our hardest to limit exposure to things and really omit things from our diet. But if you're not something with celiac, you might not take it as serious. So in that case, take gluten digest with you when you travel or you go out to eat, or you just want to live life for a day. That's fine. We totally get it. But I'm going to repeat what I said before making the change to being gluten-free is one of the easiest things that you can do in your diet today, not 20 years ago, but today it is. Just got to get a little creative. You got to do a little research, maybe get on Thrive, shop the gluten-free section, maybe shop at some different stores that have, you know, better gluten-free foods. You can find the things, you know, especially like Joe Vol, for example, freaking amazing in terms of pasta. You can make pizza that's gluten-free. That's also even better, I think, sometimes than other um, glutinous pizzas. So that's my little rant. Don't come at me and say, well, gluten is hard. Getting getting my gluten out of my diet is hard. It And it... it- it's hard. It, it can, listen, anything's hard if you think it's hard, right? Yeah. Like, you know, it, it's a mindset shift. And sure, the initial phases are going to be a little bit more tricky because you're not used to it. Sure. I will I will also say that, like Liz said, yes, the six-month time frame I think is a really good time frame. But similar to smoking, the effects of gluten can linger for a lot, a lot yeah. longer. So, like, just because you remove the stressor doesn't mean that the stress it caused is gone. And that's across the board. A lot of people are like, oh, well, I had this really, really crazy time in work, but like it just ended. So I don't know why I'm so tired or I don't know why I have all these symptoms because it just ended. And now all of the effects of that stress, your body's able to feel because it's no longer in the stress. Mm-hmm. So I posted about this on my stories about how, why am I so tired in a healing phase? Because you're finally letting your body work to heal itself. You aren't nonstop go, go, go 24 seven, where your body has to run on cortisol and adrenaline. And at some point it'll give out, but like you purposefully stopped that. And so, yes, you're going to be tired initially while you work to heal those things. But sometimes the effect of gluten, the effect of stress, the effect of alcohol, the effect of whatever it is can linger for a while because your body has multiple systems that it probably affected. So speaking of multiple systems, there's something else called mitochondria that I think a lot of people know what it is. Um, and it's basically pre- produced. It's the energy that gets produced for the cell. It's like the little battery pack. But here's the thing. A lot of times 
it can become very dysfunctional. Cells become very unhealthy. Mm -hmm. They aren't able to make and create this mitochondria as efficiently as it should. And this is like cellular inflammation. And this gets kind of deep. Like we Mm. see this a lot with our clients because system, like multiple systems are affected. And when it comes to depression, studies have found that individuals with major depressive disorder have actually like an advanced state of mitochondrial dysfunction. Um, They have abnormal mitochondrial morphology, size, density, uh, and research has shown that it is initiated by a profound glutathione decrease and a mitochondrial dysfunction. So very interesting. Um, Sometimes certain bodies too become so overloaded and burdened that they are unable to properly clean themselves essentially. Mm-hmm. They, so they don't get into like autophagy yes. and cellular turnover. And yep. I mean, you got to think, uh, so let's think about, for example, our analogy that we give with estrogen, right? You got a, a bathtub that's full. You got a drain that's clogged and the faucet is on. The same thing happens with other processes in the body where it just can't keep up because your levels have now exceeded what it was able to tolerate. And this is where things start to go haywire, right? We get depleted in all kinds of things and we just, we can't keep up. And so over time, this accumulation increases of various toxins. And so when we think about, for example, glutathione, I mean, that's the body's master antioxidant, plays a big role in your liver, and you know, health and just fatty liver disease, increasing and recovering glutathione levels improves marker on your liver panels, um, supporting the healthy growth and repair of every cell in the body. So it plays a big part in um, you know, autophagy and being able to repair your cells and also grow new cells. It can play a role in insulin sensitivity. So higher levels of glutathione appear to be important for insulin sensitivity can also reduce oxidative stress levels because if we have low levels of glutathione because of a chronic illness, right, we're not going to be able to clean things up. And so again, your immune system is not going to be working as well as it should be. And then we think about inflammation as we've kind of talked about the entire podcast here. Glutathione glutathione has uh, very important anti-inflammatory properties. Now, with glutathione, you know, you can do injectables twice a week. That would be my preferred if I'm somebody who needs a lot of glutathione. Mm-hmm. We see this on the Dutch test sometimes if people are really low, uh, or we see it like, for example, with GGT, you know, some other blood markers, but can also take it every day, um, mm-hmm. in capsule or liposomal form or whatnot. It has a short half-life that way though. So I would say take it twice a day mm-hmm. if you're somebody who's taking it, but, um, glutathione is really important. Yeah. Yeah. It's extremely important. Uh, it helps with a lot of different aspects of detoxification. Uh, so aside from, you know, the supports we can do with medication, supplements, whatever it might be. I want to talk a little bit around food um, because if you think about it, nutrition is our largest input by far. Mm-hmm. We eat multiple times a day, multiple times. Like how much input you get from nutrition on a weekly, monthly, yearly basis is astronomical when you think about it. And when you think about it in terms of what is this giving me? Is it giving me something pro-inflammatory, anti-inflammatory? Where does that balance weigh? You can really start to see the the overarching impact that it can have. And is it fun to go from eating inflammatory, you know, foods that are delicious, I'm sure, and lots of sugar and burgers and fries and alcohol and all the delicious things to maybe a more whole foods based? Sure, that a transition is really freaking hard. Because you have to retrain your taste buds, which take about, I believe it's 14 days, 14 to 21 days that you're, that for your, like, taste, buds for to your taste buds to change actually when you introduce something new. 
Um, mm. I recently saw it. To st- it's not more than a month, but like it, I think it's two weeks for when you re- basically drastically change your diet. It takes about two weeks for the taste buds to change. Um, but an anti-inflammatory nutritional protocol that is low in processed sugar and high in healthy fats and antioxidants is imperative. Like it, there is a non-option for this when you treat major depressive disorder. The brain is primarily water, fat, and cholesterol. It's lipids, right? Mm-hmm. And they are all key building blocks for promoting healthy brain function and rebuilding a damaged brain. So the proper diet to quote unquote beat depression is a phytonutrient dense vegetable, healthy fat, clean protein source. We talk about it all the time. The Mediterranean based diet. Yep. Higher fat. Yep. In that. Yep. So again, I mean, I, I named off a few uh, before, but we'll go through them again. Coconut oil coconut butter, MCT oil, coconut milk, coconut flakes, all forms of coconuts, Um, olives, olive oil, right? You want to make sure that it's a good quality, good source, wild caught fish. Um, Then we look at avocados, avocado oil, um, grass fed meats, poultry, eggs, those types of things um, that again are going to bring you protein, but also other nutrients and fatty acids within that uh, protein source. Then we think about anti-inflammatory herbs that are very calming, stimulating. We think about things that are going to support stomach acid for nutrient absorption, apple cider vinegar, ginger, turmeric, right? Fermented foods, good source of probiotics, things like that. Um, And then as many herbs, I always say to people, as many vegetables that you will consume and herbs that you will consume are fantastic because that's going to bring you, um, you know, a variety of antioxidants, phytonutrients, minerals, vitamins within these foods. Um, we always talk about the importance of diversifying your diet. Maybe you spend a season where you're a little bit more low carb, higher fat, then you come out and you're higher carb, more moderate fat, right? Still getting protein in there depending upon your blood sugar levels. But we want to make sure that we are keeping as many anti-inflammatory foods in the diet as possible and reducing the pro-inflammatory foods. So I already gave you the speech on the, you know, seed oils and the fried foods and processed, you know, packaged foods, but this is also where we would look to remove refined grains, whole grains, grains, flour products, or at least keeping them gluten-free, um, grain-fed fortified synthetic fake meat and eggs, fast food, soda, alcohol, right? Those types of things. Um, and then those rancid seed oils. So all of these things are simple to start to implement. They're not simple to you know fully implement all at once. So I would pick one thing and say, okay, what could I do this weekend to start to make these changes? Start with your cabinets, turn the label over, check the back. Don't look at the nutrition content, but look at actually the ingredients. I always say like, if there's things that you cannot you know, pronounce, or this word looks really synthetic, artificial. Maybe you look it up and see what the side effects are. That could be a good place to start. Um, but anything that has all of those seed oils in it, I would say it's a toss. Mm-hmm. Or you could scan it with the Yuka app, right? You could yep. do that too. Um, and then other things, maybe start to swap things out. Get a little bit better. Start to look at different grocery stores. You know, Aldi has wild-caught um, salmon. You can find those in the frozen section, sometimes in the fresh section. Okay, that's going to be a little bit more cost-affordable than some other grocery stores, right? Or maybe Mm -hmm. Costco and you start to venture out like, oh my gosh, Costco has, so good. I want one now. Um, (laughs) Everything crusted bagel cod that you just throw in the air fryer. Mm. My husband loves them um, as well. And it's very simple. It's very easy. All you got to do is make sure that you're, you're stocking your house with these things and then it will become easier. And then again, as we said before, it's not that you're going to avoid all of these things entirely, but you're equipping your body to handle things better. Yep. 
And outside of all of this, prioritize your sleep, get outside, move your body, get sunlight every day. Supplement maybe with an omega-3 if you're not getting enough in your diet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, take time to breathe, get into that calm state. Surface level stuff, right? It's it's very simple and people think, well, it's not, I don't feel the immediate effects, but the way that your body feels it is so different. Yeah. Um, and same it, with, it feels silly. Same with positive outlook, mindset, mindset mm-hmm. affirmation. Like it is not something that comes easy, especially for people that suffer with depression and anxiety. Like it has to be so intentional for you to sit and practice positive visualization, even if you don't feel it right away. Like I tell people all the time, when I first went through my huge mindset shift, because I was a very negative person, um, maybe I would say four years ago, it kind of four to five years ago is when I started to like really work on the shift. It took me about a year and a half until I, I, it became much more natural to me. In that time, I had a major ups and downs of this feels so fake. I don't, I don't believe myself when I say these things. Like, it was really hard because I was stuck in a negative mindset. I think partial part of that was my environment at the time, but it was me too. Like, you know, I, I succumbed to that. I was, I never saw the positive. I never saw the the, the good things in my life. It was always like, what was me? this isn't going well. My life is miserable. And I took it out on people around me. My poor husband dealt with me very, (laughs) very crazy for a while. Um, getting regular chiropractic or massage, I think is so, I think everyone should go to a chiropractor or get a massage at least once a month. I really do. Mm -hmm. I think that there is so much energy that can get locked and stored in the body. Um, yeah, I'll leave it at that. Um, vitamin D levels, check them, make sure they're optimal. If not supplement, uh, gut, like we already talked about, Magnesium and B vitamins are great for mood. Uh, make sure it's folate. Yes, make sure it's folate, not folic acid. Um, you know, maybe like go visit the puppy store occasionally. Do things that you I know. would say. Just find something that brings you joy. Yeah. You know, laugh, call a friend, play a card game, watch a comedy show, whatever you can do to really just find joy and laugh. And again, start to try to implement more positive uh, activities. And then, you know, you may consider doing some brain support supplements. Again, natural um, adaptogens, things like ashwagandha are really great or other forms of, you know, mushrooms and things like that. And, you know, again, I would say on top of all of this, make sure that you are working with a professional, right? Continue to see the therapist or the psychologist or whoever, um, because we don't want to downplay these things, but we just want you to know that there are other ways to support your body besides just taking a prescription medication. Because, you know, I've seen a lot of people and my mom, um, you know, went on some of these when she was diagnosed with ALS. And I think absolutely, you know, it was a situation that she should be um, on those things and it helped her a lot. But at the same time, you know, the question becomes, how long do you stay on things? If you want to get off of it because you fixed, you know, the underlying dysfunction, how do you get off of it? And a lot of people just don't get those answers. Same thing like with PPIs, right? Oh, take this proton pump inhibitor for your heartburn or acid reflux. And it tells me on the label, you shouldn't take it for more than, you know, eight weeks, but I've been taking it for 18 years, you know, so ask the questions. And, you know, if you're doing the deeper work, make sure that you're, you know, also addressing other things, um, whether that's emotional, uh, relational or trauma in the past, because, you know, if you can do these things in the right way with the right practitioners and the right guidance, you can get off a lot of medications or, you know, be able to just naturally support your body uh, to function as God designed it and not be in a place that you are right now. And, And that may still mean that you have medication and that's okay too. But all these other things are things that you could do, you know, to support 
your overall health and then just combat maybe the effects and the depletions of medications that you might be on.